Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from TIFO Football, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. So, what's changed? Not a lot, to be honest. Over-reliance on technology leads to incompetence and injustice. Hawkeye's so-called occlusion could cost Sheffield United millions. David Luiz, we're led to believe, cost Arsenal £24 this season. Not a great deal, that, for the Mr Bean of Premier League defenders. Manchester City's football reminded us what we've been missing but Liverpool's task remains unchanged. Six points to win their first title in 30 years. They've dropped only five in their previous 29 games. Now, I know that absence is meant to make the heart grow fonder. But we've almost forgotten how good they've been this season, haven't we, Seb? We have, Mike. We've also forgotten that they've they had a little blip before they went away. Obviously, I'm thinking of the Watford game... And also that very strange two-legged tie against Atletico Madrid. So I just wonder whether the Liverpool that come back, obviously in the motivation of getting the title won as quickly as possible, but whether it's a sort of, you know, maybe they want to attack a few of the doubts that have been festering over the last three months. I certainly think, as a broader point, I certainly think we've been guilty of taking them for granted because uh, they've been so consistent and so metronomic and so mechanical in their excellence that it's, it's been easy just to kind of to overlook how difficult it is to remain at that sort of level, to retain that level across the course of an entire season. It's an amazing achievement. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm really looking forward to seeing them again. I'm intrigued by how they respond to atmosphere or to the lack of atmosphere or to this kind of synthetic atmosphere because in my mind, so much of what Liverpool are, you know, they're, they're, they're one of those teams that are nourished by the crowd and by their fans. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, but I'm certainly looking forward to seeing them play again because they really have set the standard this year. Yeah, because that's something I, that can't be recreated, isn't it? And, and if you're thinking about a club or a team or a manager that's hardwired to feed off the emotion of the fans, it is Liverpool. Is this a big and, and very early test of Klopp's management or man management qualities? Well, I, I think Klopp's management and man management qualities are undeniable, to be honest. I don't think he's got a great deal more to prove certainly not this yeah, season yeah, yeah. it's been one of the one of the great campaigns maybe it might turn out to be the the greatest premier league campaign from an individual team um, i know that they were beaten at watford but 
but in terms of the points haul and and just the general destruction of the opposition any anything that's been in their way they they've swept aside it, it's hard to recall many better teams really so no i think Jurgen Klopp will be fine yes they do feed off the crowd but they also happen to be a really good football team don't they and and Klopp is a good motivator i'd imagine we might see even more energy from him possibly he's the one that's going to have to generate it for for the players maybe if they need it from the sidelines but uh, it's it, we we've we've waxed lyrical about liverpool all season for good reason and and all i'll say is on jürgen klopp it's a five year body of work and as a, as a body of work it is so impressive it really is year on year he's brought in the right players at the right time to help liverpool develop into a better more rounded team when he started they were chaotic frantic rubbish at the back great pressers but they weren't a complete team bit by bit they've become sophisticated and it's it's been great to watch yeah well we'll dwell more on liverpool obviously once the title is confirmed as it will be inevitably and we'll probably look at that in the context of whether this is going to be a start of a new era or you know whether dynasties actually work in modern football i suppose you know they can't win the title uh, at everton which would have been wonderfully symbolic are Everton, Seb, almost typical of the clubs who are trying to, to restore former glories? They've got money, they've got ambition. And if so, what's their realistic time frame to challenge at the very top? Years, Mike, because it's a multi-layered process. Firstly, you know, the wealthy owner was very much stage one, and that's been in place for quite a long time now. The new stadium is stage two. But alongside, you know, what are long-term aims, Everton are in the middle of kind of relaunching their commercial strategy. So obviously in the middle of the season, they announced that they were getting rid of Sports Pacer as a, um, uh, as a, as a shirt sponsor with the aim of kind trying to kind of put together a, a tranche of new, more sort of blue chip brands. And this is kind of, that's typical of the way that football clubs think in that you can't, you can't succeed with just one of these things in place. You can't just have the big stadium. You can't have the prolific commercial department and you can't just have the commercial owner. You kind of have to have all of those because the level expected, uh, the level maintained by the highest, by the biggest teams in the country and by that, which we mean Liverpool, you see a cohesiveness and a kind of 10 out of 10 performance in all these different departments. And you don't just put those kind of things in place overnight. So an awful lot of things still have to go right. Everton, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is going again, as is traditional now. Um, an awful lot of things have to go right. And Everton, you know, Everton are nowhere near that. They're, they're, they're at the beginning of that process. Let's let's be fair. I think Ancelotti is, is a huge step forward. You know, the squad start is starting to look slightly more balanced, but, you know, there's going to be all kinds of trial and error between now and them. Forget the title for them becoming a credible Champions League contender. Um, so this is a, this is a kind of a, a generational shift that we're potentially talking about. Mm, they were coming into some sort of form under Ancelotti, weren't they? Aid in terms mm. of uh, you know there, there's there's now becoming there's, there's a team shape and development becoming apparent. Uh, Dominic Calvert Lewin's really developed under his management. Progress report? Yeah, so far so good. I think yeah, seven and a half, eight out of ten for for Carlo so far. I'm a huge fan of his work. I, th- I don't think they could have appointed a better pedigree manager than him at the moment. Yeah, I was there for his first game, actually, on Boxing Day against Burnley. And 
he went with a back three. It was it was a really interesting formation because it was so fluid, and he basically had two right backs that were almost exchanging positions in Seamus Coleman and Sidibe, and it, it was fantastic. Two up top. Well, he had Richarlison that day in behind Calvert Lewin. Since then, they're sort of working together in tandem in, in I guess a four four two. So yeah, no, lots to like about him. They, they, they've got more tactical variety now. They will get better at, at the flaws. The, the obvious flaw was their defending at set pieces, which was shocking. The biggest problem, there are two big problems for Everton from a tactical point of view. In central midfield, they don't have enough quality. That's an issue. They can't get a hold of games in the way that some other teams can. They can't dominate opponents in the middle yet. Need to strengthen there. And at centre-half, even though they've got reasonable players, Yerry Mina and Holgate and guys like this, they have conceded a raft of goals with uh, through balls slipped through the centre-halves for people to run on to this season. So look, those two things need to be addressed. Going forward, I like what I see. I like, I like Richarlison and I like Calvert-Lewin. And as a combination, they're one of the best around at the moment. So so that is something for, for Toffees fans to, to definitely get behind. Yeah, I suppose you know, to your earlier point, Seb, Let's look at quickly at the competitiveness of the Premier League compared to other leagues. We're unlikely to get to a buy-in situation of any any team winning eight in a row, presumably. But if, when you look at Bayern, are they the best in Europe? For me at the moment, absolutely, Mike. It's not just the collection of players, it's the way they're playing and the kind of the intricacies of their system. So I've been fascinated by obviously everyone's everyone's been attracted to the form of Alfonso Davis, but I thought that David Alaba has been Absolutely sensational changes the dynamic at the at the root of that defence. Thomas Muller looks reborn, which I mean he's only three years younger than me, which is which is an amazing thing to see on. <laughs> um, and I also think I I know I've made this point before, but I really do think it's important. German football came back earlier, and the process by which it came back has seemed to have worked a lot better than anywhere else. And I think when it comes to the Champions League tournament and preparation and turning up mm. ready for that, I think they have a huge advantage as a result of that. Yeah, yeah, me yeah, too. Well, yeah, well, you, you, know, you can hide behind the sofa later eh, when we talk about <laughs> Arsenal, but... Look, 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 <laughs> look, I put in a request, Mike, that we did not talk about Arsenal today. I can't believe you've, you've gone against my wishes. I, I, I believe in one that we very much do, Ed, so, like, uh, <laughs> so let's cancel it out, I'm afraid. No, <laughs> I love no, it. You know, no we're biased against everyone, Ed. You must know that by now. Um, you know... Obviously, you know, in the context of that, Manchester City, you know, obviously they are still realistic candidates to win the Champions League. What do they need to do? You know, you look at Kevin De Bruyne, who looks really authentic at the moment, probably the best player in the Premier League, at the back again. Have they got their problems? It's only at the back, isn't it, really? I mean, from midfield to, to the front line, they're as good as anyone, aren't they? Even Bayern Munich, who who are, who are sensational. But, but City actually remind me in, in the makeup of, of Bayern and the way they go forward. So, so no, there is only one issue and it's a, it's a centre-half and maybe with balls in behind the full-backs. You've got to turn City. You've got to hit them hard and fast. You have to be ruthless and efficient on transition. As soon as you nick the ball back off them, you can catch that, that rear guard off guard and then you have to take your chances. And, and look, when you think about City's failures in Europe, in recent seasons, that's what's happened. They've been picked off by elite players who were absolutely clinical and ruthless. 
as a team, they are a match for anybody. And, and they, they are capable of winning it. But I still think that they have to be regarded as underdogs because the back four is not, not among the elite in a competition. Mm. What's happened to John Stones, Seb? You know, they, they played Eric Garcia, who, you know, coming from his Barcelona pedigree, you know, having been at, over there in Spain, that still hurts that they lost him. You know, obviously had that unfortunate injury near the mm. end of the game last night. Playing him before Stones, where does that leave John Stones? Does he probably need to leave Manchester City? Yeah, I'd say so because um, I think John Stones is extremely fortunate there's no European Championship this summer because if there were, I'm not sure he'd be picked. I'm not sure he'd make the 23. Certainly not going to start for England. Think of the form of someone like Joe Gomez, comfortably ahead of John Stones. I don't know what it is, Mike. I mean, with with Stones, it's interesting. There's always been this kind of this background discussion about attitude and application and the way he lives his life and I don't know I can't I can't speak to the veracity of those stories but it just seems like he seems like a player that has all the, the ability in the world and he is actually stylistically here he, you couldn't build a more perfect defender for the modern game because he's so cultured he's so good on the ball and at his best he's so confident and I wonder if that's not the issue. I wonder if he hasn't just been spooked. I wonder if this is a kind of something's occurred within his career whether it be on the pitch or otherwise, which has just disrupted that equilibrium. Because it, what's really interesting, Mike, is if you remember the kind of the first days of Guardiola, how passionately he would defend John Stones, almost to the point of parody. Like he would he would almost yeah. make a spectacle of himself in press conferences when he talked about, yeah. you know, what John Stones was as a footballer. And, and we, had, we had our fun with Guardiola as a result. And now, 18 months later, and two years ago, he was a fundamental part of that, that, that England World Cup, World Cup team. You know, now he's nowhere to be seen. I'd have to look this up, but I mean, I think he—he's he, only played sort of three ninety-minute games since in the, in the Premier League, at least, at least since February. He needs to leave because he needs football. He needs he needs to go somewhere where he can restore these balances in his game. Um, I think he should go overseas. Yeah, I, really good do. Shout, I, good I think I think I think it would suit suit him better in in La Liga or Bundesliga. Or actually, actually, the move for him if he can get a, a decent enough transfer would be Serie A because the coach in there is fundamentally, you know, mm. used to be more about defending, but it's still very, very important to the Italian style of play to, to be able to defend properly. I think he'll learn learn the art of defending. What is missing from John Stone's game, in my opinion, is a defensive nose. And and he, it, you can't, sometimes you can't coach things in, into certain people. When I think of the, the very best defenders ever and right now, they have all absolutely despised conceding goals. And I don't think it hurts John Stones enough to let in a goal. I don't think it hurts him enough to make a mistake because often the mistakes come by him trying to do the right thing, trying to follow the coach's instructions. But but the bottom line is his job is to stop other teams scoring. And yeah, I'm not sure it hurts him enough. So, so yeah, he needs a, a career reboot, in my opinion. And actually to get away from this country and to, to just learn the art of defending somewhere else. Now, you're talking about defensive noses there, Aid. Um, I never had one, by the way. <laughs> so I can't talk. <laughs> well, well, well perhaps, I, you know, neither does David Louise. You know, his defensive nose has been cut off despite his face, I think, hasn't it? Oh, dear. Well, it's concentration, isn't it, with, with him most of the time. Yeah, it was a calamitous performance. And uh, we, we all saw what happened. He just didn't get himself in the right positions. His, his uh, decision-making in crucial moments was poor. 
And yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard to see him regaining trust, certainly with the fans. I think that that, that that's a lot of them are are sort of over it now with him. Is Mikel Arteta? That is the big question. There's a contract situation. Will that will they renew? Won't they renew? We'll have to wait and see. But but that kind. Of, if I'm David Luiz this morning, I don't think I'm expecting a call from Arsenal saying, "Look, here's your terms. Please sign." I I, I think they're more likely to go the other way. It's my own personal opinion. And this is just me. It's is that for the money that he he commands in in salary they'd probably be better off investing it in someone young, hungry and uh, someone that can can be more reliable over over a period of time. And, and, and yeah, there, I'm sure there are some, some good candidates out there. He was playing okay before the break. He was getting better. But this was, um, well, it was one of the, the worst substitute, substitute performances I can remember in the Premier League. So, so yeah, he'll be, he'll be gutted. I, I can't see him play. I can't see him playing again. Can you, Seb? In, not in I, the Premier League. I, I don't think so. What I was going to say, Mike, is I, I, if you take the second moment out, the penalty mm. and the red mm. card, like the mm. first thing, I've got a little bit of sympathy for him. It's mm. a it's a wet day. The ball's come through. Mm. It's a miss hit from De Bruyne, and it's skipped up on him. Like, okay, I'm I was an amateur poor footballer, but I can relate to how, to to how awkward that can be. But I'd also say, like, I don't know if you guys agree, but a why is no one tracking? The run that Sterling makes across the front of that defence, yeah, you know, with the knowledge, yeah, Mustafi. Also, is why why is there not more effort to to cut that off at source? So you look at if you, if Kevin De Bruyne is on the ball in that position, and I'm defending the Etihad, I am making every effort possible to try and cut that off to take away his time, to take away his passing opportunity. Come on, surely. Aubameyang has to make a little bit, has to do a little bit better in that situation. Like Luis, Luis is the kind of the poster child for comedic defending. I accept that. And he's earned that reputation. And, you know, the way he finished the game make, makes his position indefensible. Yeah, um, yeah but it's, it's body position. Defenders have to expect the worst. Yeah. Always have to expect the worst. That is, that is part of a defender's makeup. You you have to expect something bad to happen at all times. That, that's that's what makes them, them defenders. And, and he didn't do that there. He didn't get himself in the right body position. He certainly didn't react quickly enough. The second goal, I think he was even more culpable yeah, because definitely. you could see the move building up. You could see that the ball was going to come inside to Mares, and and the angle of his run towards Mares was just all wrong. And it's it's something you, you wouldn't expect a rookie defender to, to make because if I'm a forward there and I see him coming horizontally towards me in that situation, I'm thinking. Thanks. Yeah, I'm just exactly. going to knock the ball past you because you're not going to be able to to react quickly enough to 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 stay goal side and 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 that was. I, I do think that both both errors were were lapses in in focus and and when you're when you're a defender playing playing against Manchester City, you can't have any lapses in concentration. You have to you have to go through the match pretty much mistake free to stand any chance of winning and and, and it was just the the timing of the goal as well. And and also, Arsenal were quite comfortable first twenty minutes. I thought Mary and uh, Mustafi were coping okay. They didn't really create that much. It was from twenty five minutes onwards where Leno was suddenly called into action. So can you pin that all on David Luiz? No, of course you can't. But but I do think that he was a little bit. Well, he was rocky. He was rocky, and players were players were running off it. Players were running off him for fun before he made that mistake. 
for the goal. So yeah, it was it was just we all have nightmares, and and that was you know unfortunately that was one for him. Yeah, well he's he has recurring nightmares, which I think yeah, he, he never issue, wakes up it? though, does he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but did, did we get also an indication of the the depth of Arsenal's problems, or specifically Mikel Arteta's problems? He didn't pick in a twenty-man squad, Meza Ozil. To me, that is a big signal that he's expendable, and there's a salary dump going to happen at some stage. Am I reading that right? Uh, whew, I don't know, Seb. I don't know if you've got any any views on this, but personally, I yeah, I I think he said it was tactical, and 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 you, in in Mikel Arteta's shoes, I wouldn't have picked Meza Ozil either, not because I don't rate him. He was playing pretty well, actually, before the break. It's because his record in away games against top teams is, is, is not good. And and I probably wouldn't have selected him. I would have had him on the bench. I think the fact that he wasn't involved at all is, is a sign. Yeah, I do. I do think it's a sign that, that, that changes are afoot. And they have, to, they, have to, they have to be quite radical. You, what we saw last night was a stark reminder of how far Arsenal have fallen behind the big boys. They are miles away. Arteta is sort of pigeon steps, closing the gap. It didn't seem like it last night, but he is. They they will get better under him. But but the big advancement can't happen until a whole bunch of the current players leave and he's allowed to bring in his own players. And 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 that I think has to happen sooner rather than later. And that and that's when you can judge Mikel Arteta. But but and, and on that on that basis. Ozil, Louise, uh, others, maybe Alexander Lacazette, who's, who's become a fringe player. These high earners will, will probably have to go. I wonder whether whether there's a story in Pepe, guys, because that was strange too. I, mm. I find that almost stranger than, than the Ozil situation because he's a £17 million player. And, you know, he, once that game's lost, you'd have expected, okay, so he didn't start the game. You thought, right, well, maybe, maybe we'll give him 20 minutes, 10 minutes because, you know, we're going to need him over this course of games because they're coming quick, thick and fast. That was really interesting. Nelson comes on, yeah. Nelson yeah. comes on instead, and, and well, it's... Saka, Saka, a left back, plays ahead yeah. of him, and then Nelson. Willick as so, well. Yeah it, it, yeah, it was, it was, it yeah, it was, it was unusual. I just all I can say is that Mikel Arteta has picked the team on form and what he's seen in training, because but you know, I did a stats piece, uh, you know, on on the Ars- for Arsenal recently, and Pepe for for all his trials and tribulations, and he, and I don't think anyone can call him a hit yet. He actually leads the way in assists. He's got twice as many assists as any other Arsenal player this season. He leads the way for key passes in open play, dribbles, successful dribbles by far. He's actually quite an influential player, as he should be for the price. But but there's a, there's a perception that he's been awful. He hasn't, and he was actually improving before the break. So so yeah, for all of those reasons, it's a mystery why he wasn't involved last night. Yeah, they they're going to have um, an issue. Obviously, it's a very quick turnaround. For the Brighton game, you know, I say that it's normally okay in, in the natural momentum of a season, you know, have a Wednesday, Saturday. But given the layoff and the injuries that they picked up last night to Maury and Jacker, will that have an impact, you think, at Brighton on Saturday, which is obviously, you know, the, the 3 p.m. kickoff for BT Sport? I would have thought so. I mean, I it was it was actually very alarming just, um, you know, how unbalanced that midfield became once Jacker left. I've also got, I've got a pretty big doubts about Guendouzi. I know that all sorts of Arsenal fans have signed him off as a kind of a, a future great. I don't see it. I see it like a, 
like a gifted player, but a very raw one who, you know, is, is, is very erratic and very wild and, and sort of his pressing patterns are a little bit strange. He's sort of like a, an independent part of that side. So I'd worry if he's your senior holding midfielder, then I've got problems. Well, he with isn't. That. He isn't. He but was, he's, he's not going to. He's yeah. going to have to play their aid, though. I mean, well, I mean, Terrera maybe. Yeah. But I mean, I, he I, has to be a box-to-box guy for me because he's his strength is actually closing people down and, and and pinching the ball and driving the team forward. Once the change made, he he went to the holding position, and he, for all the reasons you've outlined, and they are correct, it just didn't suit him. It's the midfield, for, for all the talk of David Luiz and Mustafi... The midfield and, is a disaster at the moment. The, the midfield this season has, has, has been a pale shadow of, of the Arsenal midfield of, of, of yesteryear. I analysed all the, some of the classic games during this pandemic and the, the one constant was how brilliant and how strong they were in central midfield. That was, that was the cornerstone of Arsenal's success under, under Arsene Wenger in the early days. And... Right now, that, that look, I would completely change the midfield. I think this summer I'd bring in two or three newcomers and, and, and revamp it completely because the structure of it isn't right. And it's, yeah, the you need a defensive platform and defensive platforms aren't built by just centre-halves. It has to be the whole team, but particularly that what goes on in the middle of the pitch. And, and yeah, Arsenal just don't have the athleticism or the defensive nous really to... To compete with the very best, as, as we well, even I, I mean, I think that's why I'd worry about them at Brighton as well. Like away from home, I, look, I know it's a little bit different, and I know we're sort of factoring out atmosphere and home advantage. But if you're going to get dominated structurally away from home in the middle of the pitch, you, you, you're not going to win games. And I just worry, like I, I don't see, I don't see any other situation other than Guendouzi playing as that deepest man in the midfield. And that I, I, I tell you, point. I, I know it's not a role he's suited to, but it's kind of it's one. One of the oddities now is that if you if you get injured, even if you get a, a, a you know soft tissue injury, you're probably going to miss five or six games, yeah. and so that's a huge yeah. amount of the season now. And and so, so well, if Torreira's fit, yeah, he needs to play there. He yeah. needs to play there. He's, he's the he's the only real guy that can do it. I agree. I agree. Mm, well, hearing the police siren in the background, it sounds like <laughs> yeah. someone's going to take David Luiz away. Oh, stop it, boys! Stop it. <laughs> uh, listen, let, let's look at some of the um, you know the broader issues of of, of last night. You know, one thing that cannot be occluded, to use the word of the moment, <laughs> um, is is technology. What a shambles! Okay. Oh, I um, right. I the, the thing about that is that I've read the explanation from Hawkeye. I feel as if Hawkeye has thrown itself under the under under the bus voluntarily, or at the behest of other organisations who are probably equally as culpable. Tell me this, guys, at Stockley Park, we've all spent time there. At Stockley Park, you have a referee and a Hawkeye technician watching the game. Now, everybody watching that match saw the ball cross the line. Why is it? I know it's not procedure, and I know there was an issue with goal line technology, and it was, you know, it was a freak incident, okay? How is it that someone doesn't get in Michael Oliver's ear and say, you need to look at this? How, 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 is, how is it possible that there's no communication? I, I Honestly, I think VAR's got off extremely lightly. I know it's not their responsibility in that instance, but they are supposed to be a safeguard. And there's an awful lot of... Um, one of the themes of this season has been a failure to take responsibility for things which haven't looked right or gone right or performed as well as they should should have done. And I think Hawkeye's been pushed under the bus for the sake of... Look, uh, technology failures happen. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's a freak incident. Okay, I don't, I don't blame Hawkeye. You're absolutely right. Stockley Park had a chance, a golden opportunity 
to regain respect and to to show why video technology is so important to the future of football. And they became pin pushers instead. They stuck to IFAB protocol. IFAB protocol in that example has to be overruled by fairness and common sense. Stockley Park had to go in the ear of the referee there and say, it's over the line. There must be a malfunction with the technology. You go and have a look. You make the call, but that is a goal. We cannot play on. We can't let this go. This nonsense about IFAB protocol is, 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 is scandalous, really. And, and I genuinely feel that, that it's, it's made VAR in this country have another backward step. They could, have, they could have won the people over by saying, this is what we're here for. Stuff the rules. Stuff IFAB protocol. It is just common sense. We're stepping in. It We're is. stepping in. I mean, but got... doesn't it, doesn't it, Seb? Though doesn't it, Seb, point to the the wider issue of technology neutering referees that they are almost scared to believe the evidence of their own eyes. And Michael Oliver, by common consent, is an exceptionally good referee. Yet he basically just mimed. Well, you know, the watch doesn't work. It you know, computer says no. Well. That, I think, is part of the issue, is that the referees them scare, themselves have been scared into submission. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Mike. I mean, you had a situation where a goalkeeper was holding the ball and lying in the netting like a hammock. And, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I, I don't feel quite as much sympathy for Michael Oliver as, as you do. I, I take the point that sort of he was clearly being influenced by the kind of the, um, the muscle memory of relying on technology. At the same time, he's a hugely experienced referee now. I mean, I, I don't really care what the protocols are. I think you need to look at that. There needs to be communication. The game needs to be stopped. Because, listen, Sheffield United have the second best defensive record in the country. That's a goal. They're one up. They probably go on and win the game. And if they do so, they sit in one of the Champions League places. Now, I feel desperately sorry for Chris Wilder and his players. That's just, it's just a, it's a Lampard level injustice. That's and a, if Villa stay up by a point, yeah. someone will go down yeah, on, the back, of that, on the back of that as well. It, it, I completely agree with you. I think if pre-VAR, Michael Oliver and the linesman, let, let's not let the linesman off the hook here. They got the best view in the house. They would have been dropped for a couple of weeks because that is a, that is a blatant, miss on their part i get that the reliance on technology makes you second guess it but but that was that was incredibly obvious and yeah it's it's going to be costly you you suspect for for sheffield united those those two lost points could be the difference between european football or not or or even champions league football or not so yeah i feel i feel for them and what about nylon by the way i mean how do we feel about that i can't see it because i i at the time i chastised thierry Henry for for the handball goal against Ireland. He wanted to go to the World Cup. He didn't care that he, he sort of cheated his way there. Now, Ireland, I know it's very hard to come back from, from owning up to a goal that could send your team down in the eyes of, of, of your own supporters. But Nyland there, I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't particularly sporting, was it, what he did? I suppose... I mean, I, I isn't, think... it, isn't it a player's instinct to get away with one if they yeah, can? Yeah, of course it is. And, and I was guilty of it. And, and it's, probably, I can't really recall too many instances, <laughs> not like that. Um, but of course, of course, you, you try and bend the rules. But, but I don't know. In a way there, we've, we've lauded Marcus Rashford for his off the, off the pitch exploits this, this week. 
what an unbelievable moment that would have been from him and what a sporting moment. It would have been one of the great sporting moments, I think, of all time for him to to own up to the goal. Um, I, 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 I mean, I don't know, mate. I, I think he... I mean, I, I have a little bit of sympathy with him because I think it he isn't necessarily aware that he, he probably thinks it has crossed the line. But I think it's kind of, it's not necessarily one of the situations where he knows that it's, it's gone over. And also, like, it's such a humiliating situation. That is a terrible mistake if it goes in. I, I think it's very human to, um, you know, do you remember Roy Carroll's moment at Old Trafford against Spurs? It's yeah, a bit like yeah. that. I mean, it's kind of, uh, the instinct is to try and get away with it because it's self-preservation, isn't it? Henri... It's a different grade. Henri just cheated yeah. against Ireland. Yeah, this was um, this was v, this is on VAR. Yeah, but I don't yeah. think that the officials or the goalkeeper come out with any credit. Oh, I don't think yeah. anyone do comes you, out with do, any credit. Do you think that you know? My instinct would be if I was in Sheffield United's shoes this morning, I would be contacted contacting my learned friends because if this cost them, it could cost them countless millions of pounds. This mistake. You know, it's all very well, and I thought Chris Wilder handled it brilliantly. You know, the whole thing about um, Del the, Del, the Del Boy the watch and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, They're lucky. They're lucky it happened to Wilder's team. But how would you imagine what happened to Spurs under Jose or or someone prick? You know, a big heavyweight. Can you imagine if it, it happened in a in a match that on the final day of the season, guys? I, I mean, not to be too conspiratorial, but if that happens to a bigger side, I think the way it's dealt with is different. I think if that happens at Old Trafford or the Etihad or the Etihad or Stamford Bridge, I think there are different pressures on the officials. I think it's it will be one of those things that within a day or two nobody will really talk about it because it's Sheffield United. It will be funny and hilarious, and everyone will laugh about it for a long time. But are the actual real world consequences about it uh, of it, I don't think people will dwell there on. Be That's very unfair. There, there should, should be, be an yeah. inquest, and it should be it should be decided that the these these awful IFAB protocols that they hid behind last night, shamefully, in my opinion, have to, have to be overruled. If, if VAR, the people at Stockley Park, see a clear injustice, they have to step in. They have to. No matter what the, the technical situation is, they have to step in. We, we can't have repeats of this. It's, it's awful. Mm, yeah. Well, we mentioned Jose Mourinho. Obviously, he will be front and centre when Manchester United return at Tottenham on Friday evening. Seb, I know it's close to home. Do you sense that he's at a crossroads with Spurs? Very much so. You know, I, I think he's actually, he has an opportunity at Spurs because of their situation and because come the summer, there won't be any you know major funds to reinvest or there won't be a huge re restructuring at Spurs. So he has a kind of he has no agency with which to complain about transfer budgets and you know who's coming in and you know where's my sixty million pound centre half because it's just utterly pointless. Daniel Levy is not for moving. We know this. So as a result, it kind of focuses Jose Mourinho on the micro aspects. Can he improve player X? Can he turn player Y into a credible fullback slash holding midfield or whatever wherever the gap in his team may be? Can he patch it up? It essentially. Is he still a first-class mind in the game? So it's a crossroads in, in that sense, Mike, because it's kind of, you could see him reclaiming a little bit of his reputation here. And that's kind of this, this strange consequence of Spurs sort of less than advantageous circumstances. Personally, I'm, I'm dreading Friday night. I don't think anything he's done at Spurs suggests that he's capable of getting a tune out of these players. I think he's actually, in, in a few cases, he's exactly what certain players do not need. So it's not something that uh, I would cheerfully go back to the lockdown and no football versus, you know, watching mm -hmm. that game. 
But it is an opportunity for him. It's a chance for him to prove people like me wrong. People like people who have been sort of slagging him off and whipping his reputation and chiseling away at his achievements. Okay, well then, um, you know, make us all look silly. No one would be happier than me to to sort of to climb down on that. But I just don't see it. I think Manchester United are in a far better place. I know it's been a long time since their win over Man City, but you know they just feel like a healthier football team than Tottenham. Even though you know he'll he'll be bringing back a whole load of um, players from the injury list. I just. I don't feel good about it. I know that's not an analysis, but I just don't. I just don't. But, I don't but, see any long term. But doesn't that match the mood? Doesn't that match the mood at Tottenham at the moment, Seb? Because if you think about it, you've had the Deli Alley distraction. Yeah. That you know, completely unnecessary suspension. Probably needs to, to watch himself a little more and, mm-hmm. and and be aware of his surroundings. What I thought was significant was Hugo Lloris. He was very downbeat in his pre-match interviews this week. You know, he was stressing that. Fatigue was a factor in this season's disappointment. And it was just this almost Eeyore mentality. Aid, if you had him as a captain, should he be setting a better example? <laughs> it's not a great look, is it? It's not a great look, I have to say. Unusual character. I must admit, I'm not, not a huge fan of Hugo Lloris. I don't know what it is. There's something about him. I know he's a World Cup winner and he makes he makes some great saves, but... I think he's become less and less reliable, actually, as a as a Premier League number one. But yeah, no, it's not it's not a look you're after, especially when when your manager is is so often downbeat as well and and prickly and and and, and speaks as if the world is against you. So no, I, I would I would like a bit more positivity if I was a if I was a Spurs supporter. Look, there are there are things to feel good about. Kane's back. Yeah, back, guys. Can I make the point? Like, I, 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 I agree with both of you about Larissa's demeanor, also about sort of his decline in status. What I'd say is, is his attitude towards life at Tottenham. I don't blame him for whatsoever. If, if you think of, back to kind of the waypoints during the Pochettino cycle, now someone like Hugo Larissa, yeah, absolutely, he's a World Cup winner who has come very close, but without realizing ambitions in the Premier League, the Champions League, the FA Cup, the League Cup. Now, at every point when Spurs were almost at the crest of the hill. There was no support from the club in terms of investment, in terms of, you know, reinforcing positions, which obviously, obviously, obviously needed to be improved. Mm. Now, so if you're if you're Hugo Lloris and you mm. see the circumstances in the world, global pandemic, the massive loan that the club have just taken out to assure, reassure their future, to safeguard mm. their future, and Jose Mourinho coming through the door with the greatest respect, why would you be positive about any of that? Yeah. Because yeah, what, your, just, your, your, your chance you, you, to achieve is gone. Like it's, it, the yeah. window's closed. So I, I like him as a person. I think he speaks quite well and he's eloquent, but I don't see the the the, the reason for any optimism. I mean, Spurs, Spurs are eight in nine the games, League. Nine <laughs> games to potentially, you know, claw your way back into into the Champions League. I mean, there's, ah, there's plenty of incentive there. I, I mean, there's there's an incentive, but is there is there a future? So what happens after they finish sixth or seventh? They go into the summer and they, you know, it's oh, like... It's I, like thought when they, I thought when Spurs got the new stadium, said that the future was golden. It's what, it's what we were sold. Aid. It's what we were sold. It's the kind of there's, there's always this kind of you know this is what we have to do and and you know that that bright new tomorrow with all the sunshine that's next week that's next week that's next yeah. week it's always that way. Um, yeah. So I, I I think it's more a case of with someone like Larice and to a certain extent people like Jan Vertonghen as well the penny's dropped. It's kind of this is this is your limit at Tottenham under this current ownership. You know there's been a lot of noises off at Manchester United as well, but you know as as we mentioned earlier there does seem to have been a lift in mood, if nothing else. Before we consider United and their capacity to maybe take that Champions League spot, 
Let's briefly look at what I suppose we must call the Rashford effect. You know, basically, we've got a new national hero here, haven't we, regardless of affiliation? Yeah, yeah, we have. He's, he's excelled himself, inspirational, just a, just a great person. And, and it's great for Manchester United to, to have him as the spearhead of their attack, isn't he? But yeah, Manchester United will be a lot more popular because people who don't even follow football now know who Marcus Rashford is and, and they're, they're sort of, everyone likes him. So yeah, their popularity will, will improve. And look, the, the respect he will get from others is, is, I hope, going to be fantastic moving forwards. But look, it's not, it's not going to really make too much difference to what they do on the football pitch. Actually, I, I think that they're... In ter- I'm interested to see how he responds as a footballer now because suddenly there, there's more going on in his life, isn't there? There's, there's a lot more going on in his life. There are more people talking about him in glowing terms, yes, but the, he's still the focus of a lot of people's attention at the moment. Will that impact negatively on his performance or will he be galvanised by, by his newfound popularity? I don't know. I, ho- I, hope, I hope it's the, the latter. But yeah, how he responds... Is going to be interesting to watch. I think he's a terrific player. Manchester United are infinitely better when he is playing well. It's been a breakthrough campaign, in my view. He's he's their their player of the year, and 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 do you know what? In, in a fairly open field because Liverpool don't have one super standout individual this year. It's been more of a collective effort. I think De Bruyne is is probably the the leading contender as an individual, but Rashford. For what he's done off the pitch and on the pitch, if he was to have a brilliant nine games now, I think there's a good chance he could win the Football Writers Player of the Year. Well, we've been voting about that this week. You know, I think the chap they used to call Daniel, or someone called Daniel, has got a very, very good <laughs> chance of winning it. Simply because, I, I, yeah, you know, I, but simply because, Aid, you know, our, our award talks about precept and example. Yeah, and okay. you yeah. know that—that that I think, if I'm honest, will will win Rashford the Football of the Year. Yeah. I always I always like to wait personally to to see the season or as much of the season as possible because it could be incredibly unfair. If Kevin De Bruyne, you know, ends up with 30 assists this season, I, I would I would it would I would feel wrong not voting for him to be the Footballer of the Year. But I do I do understand where where guys like yourself are coming from with it. When you when you look at uh, Manchester United, Seb, they are. There's a daily slurry of speculation around them in terms of players that are going to get in or going to get rid of whatever. One name that comes up, you know, relatively consistently is Raúl Jiménez. Twenty-two goals for Wolves this season, another ten assists. He has been linked with United, and interestingly, you know, looking at an interview over the last couple of days, it wasn't quite a come and get me plea, but it was it was pretty much yeah, I'm, I'll be up for Manchester United. Do you expect him to move or would he align himself with the Wolves project? You know, they come back at West Ham on Saturday. Do you think he will emerge as their key player and the, the key factor in this run-in for them? Yes, I, well, I, I, I think inevitably he'll be fundamental to what they do next. Also in the Europa League as well, I think Wolves are really mm. well placed to win that. I hope he aligns himself with this project, Mike, because Raul Jimenez in Europe has not been a success until now. He had, didn't have a good time at Atletico Madrid. He wasn't prolific at Benfica by any stretch of the imagination. And when he arrived in the Premier League, I don't think it was with any expectation. He's also, in my mind, he's an excellent player, but he's a system player in the sense that he depends on what's around him, the combinations that can be constructed in support of him. So 
if Manchester United are looking for a player that they can kind of hang their hat on and say, well, you're going to be you're going to be a sort of a talismanic thirty goal a season guy, I don't think he's that player. But I I, I just I, I see him as is emblematic of what Wolves are is that they're a construction. They're just a a really and it's a bit of a you know a, a trite remark, but they're just a really good piece of work, aren't they? They're just nuts and bolts put together really well, like a, a sort of a Swiss watch of a football team, and. I always prefer when players find themselves in a good situation and it's benefiting their career and reputation. I always, always want to see them stay there just because I want to see what's, what, he, what he's capable of. And um, his partnership with Adama Traore, yes, but but also Diogo Jota. I think that's one of the, the most understated duos in the league because they there's something quite unorthodox about the way that they combine, but it's it's great. When when they're at their very, very best, they cause problems for all sorts of teams. And I just, I want to see more of that. I love going to Molyneux and... Um, I mean, I'm not going to do that anytime soon, I guess. But, you know, they're, they're, they're part of the spectacle. And um, Jimenez has, has been huge to Wolves' um, ascent. What do you feel about West Ham aid? I'll tell you, let's boil it down to one player. I know that's probably unfair to a degree, but Declan Rice. Now, the perception is that he's regressed a bit this season. But if you look at it, the stats bear out his improvement. More passes into the final third, more tackles won, more interceptions, more dribbles completed. What's the reality, the statistical summary or the sort of conventional wisdom? Oh, it's, it's a good question because my eyes tell me that he has not been as influential, not, not been as impressive this season in most games. He's had some outstanding performances, of course he has, but I don't think he's been as consistent yet. I agree with you. I've looked at the stats myself and he's, he's exceptionally high in every category, those that you mentioned and others for defensive midfielders. Statistically, he's one of the two or three most effective defensive midfield players in the Premier League. And so it's undeniable that how influential he is. He's a quality footballer. Must be frustrating for him because the team around him has has had a really laboured campaign. And yeah, you wonder for for him, and we just talked about should Raul Jimenez leave, I think I think actually the time, no matter whether they stay up or not, I think the time probably is right for, for Declan to leave. I think he's signed a long-term contract, hasn't he? So, so they'll get top dollar for him if, if the bids come in. But I think for his career, he probably needs to play in a, in a better team. I genuinely feel that. Um, but yeah, West Ham, I think they'll survive just. Much will depend on, on Antonio, actually, who doesn't get a lot of court time. I, th- I think that he, he gives them... So much more penetration and power in forward areas. When he's missing, West Ham's firepower. He's not a glamour player, we know that. But when he's missing, their chances of scoring goals just diminishes. It really does. So they have to keep him fit. What about Watford, Seb? You know, they're at home to Leicester in the first BT Sport fixture on Saturday. You know, obviously that's a significant or symbolic game for Nigel Pearson against his old club. Ben Foster's just signed a new two-year contract. He's always struck me, well, he has struck me immensely over the last couple of months as a, you know, a really good character. That's the sort of player that they'll need over the next few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I've got, I've got a story about Ben Foster, actually. I, um, I was reporting from the Watford-Southampton game last season when Shane Long scored the quickest goal in Premier League history. And 
after full time, we're all sat in the, the the press room auditorium, you know, wait, just finishing off copy and filing and what have you. And Ben Foster came walking through, just shouting, "I'm a record breaker! I'm a record breaker!" You know, he's he's like he's just a <laughs> he's a bit of an odd guy, but he just seems like such a nice person. You know, he's obviously done some really um you know important charity work as well. There's some lovely videos of you know him taking his time to sort of you know to care for sick children and stuff, which is wonderfully admirable. I think he's a kind of when you have senior players and dressing around like that. I think it's really, really important when it comes to sort of a relegation battle, you know, because we've just been talking about West Ham. And one of the issues I have with them is that do you trust many of those players to be invested in the future of that club? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the kind of the, the players they spent 40 million, 50 million on, you know, some of the players who know that if the, if the club go down, well, they'll just go somewhere else. So you can't really have enough Ben Fosters. I mean, Mark Noble's in that category. Declan Rice is to an extent. I like players that sort of not only do a lot of shouting and encouraging dressing rooms, but seem to be part of a community at clubs, seem to actually care for the future of a football club in the kind of the traditional sense. And Foster's one of those. He's vital. And hey, I mean, let's not overlook just how good a player he's been as well. He didn't, England didn't quite work out for him, nor did Manchester United, but he's been a very, very good goalkeeper for a long time. And I feel like sometimes the kind of Ben Foster, the personality slash character, slightly puts that in the, in the shade, and that's um, that's probably not right. Yeah, I suppose that then does bring us round, you know, quite naturally to to the case of Ryan Fraser. I know we spoke about it earlier in the week. You know, Bournemouth they begin home to Palace. There's just an edge to that place at the moment. It wouldn't make me very happy if I was a, Bour- a Bournemouth fan. By confirming his departure on contract June the 30th. Isn't that a huge, potentially decisive blow to morale there? Yeah, it's selfish. That's what it is. It's looking after number one. And yeah, but but he'll be kept out of the building. He won't be at training. He's done. He's done. So don't come. Don't don't be part of the group. Don't, you, you, you know, Ryan Fraser has left the WhatsApp group. You know, that has to happen. Um, <laughs> I have to start a new one without him. Uh, it, you just have to forget about him because he's shown that, that number one is more important than Bournemouth, his paymasters, the, the fans that have backed him all these years. He doesn't care enough to keep to keep Bournemouth up. I, I, I wasn't in the same position because I didn't have anywhere lined up. But I, I remember playing for South End. I'd been out of the team. I knew my contract. My contract was up at the end of the season, and I knew it wasn't going to get renewed because the manager couldn't look me in the eye. But then, towards the end of the season, he needed me because there was injuries, and he got me back involved. Did I turn around and say, "Stuff you! I'm not getting injured. I'm a free transfer this summer. I don't want to scupper my career prospects." No, you just get on with it. You just play, and you hope for the best. That's what you do. And so, yeah, he's gone down in my estimations in the same way that Lyle Taylor, the Hull players the other players at Charlton and, and various others around the country that have, that have taken this stance. It's an unusual situation, but I just think morally it's wrong. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, we come to the, the part of the programme where we talk about our thoughts for today. Seb, what have you got to get off your chest? Well, I'm cheating really because my thought for the day involved Ryan Fraser. Um, okay. Go uh, I've got a slightly different angle on it. Like, okay. I... Um, I had a long conversation with people, a couple of people on Twitter about this yesterday, and I, I hate it. I think it's an absolute disgrace. But for, for some of these players, it's almost like they forget what the consequence of relegation is. Like, you know, relegation doesn't hurt a player, really. Relegation hurts a club. 
like relegation hurts people that are employed by a club. Now, when you're a, a, a you know club like Bournemouth, who's you know I, I think they are in the in the Premier League, they are they have the highest percent the highest percentage of their turnover is accounted for by television revenue. Now, relegation as a result of that, with or with, without parachute payments, would be an absolute disaster. So. What Ryan Fraser is saying is that it's not just he's putting himself ahead of his teammates. He's putting himself ahead of everyone to everyone relating, everyone related or dependent on a club that made him. I understand that a player has a right to look after themselves and their future. And if he were to get injured, yes, that puts him in a difficult position. But I hate the attitude that it's fine because I matter more. Or I, and I, I'm with Adrian. Shut up and get on the pitch. It's a ten-game season. And the club's future, and I do mean future in the big capital letter sense, because there are financial problems if, if Bournemouth go down. The club's future could depend on Ryan Fraser. He's an extremely good player. He's a very important player. He hasn't had the best of seasons, I'll admit that. But he could be the difference between survival and relegation. Get on the pitch. Play. Sign your, you, you know, I mean, also, if he thinks that sort of this isn't going to reflect on him as a person, you know, if, if a sporting director at another club, at a sort of an Everton or a Tottenham or whoever else, isn't going to look at this and say, okay, I know what you are as a player, but this is who you are as a person. You know, how is this not a red flag? You know, you're not, if this is how you're going to behave in this situation, you're not welcome at my club. You go and play for someone else. Go and earn your hundred grand a week somewhere else. I, I hate it because fans and fans pay the wages of players through broadcasting payments, uh, through um, subscriptions to TV channels and whatever else. And there's a lot more to a football club than just players, managers, directors, owners. And this situation is an example of a footballer being completely indifferent to all of that. And I absolutely loathe it. I suspect a lot of people are nodding in assent as we speak. OK, Aid. Mm. Well, actually, it follows on because another player out of contract that I just wanted to bring up, and that's David Silva. Again, brilliant last night. You know, oozing class. He's out of contract. He's, he's, he's due for a, a big old payday somewhere next season to, to, to round off his career. He's playing on, isn't he? No, 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 no problem, no issue there, is there? No, it's just, there's a piece in the Times today that I read from Paul Hurst. It just, just, just made me think, yeah, what a shame that he's not going to get the audience, the send-off that he deserves. He's a bona fide Manchester City legend, one of the all-time greats of that football club. And because of the pandemic, because there's no supporters allowed to come into the stadiums and see him, they won't get to watch him in the flesh again. And they won't give it, get to give him the send off that that he deserves. So, so yeah, just a little thought for David Silver, the antithesis really of uh, of Ryan Fraser. Yeah, I suppose the case of Ryan Fraser underlines why player power is a phrase with so many negative connotations. Yeah, as we get back into our stride, I think it's probably time to accentuate the positive. Modern players are a credit to themselves their club and the game. Now, we've spoken about Marcus Rashford, but what about Raheem Sterling, Jordan Henderson, Mark Noble and others who've taken the lead? What about Hector Bellerin, promising to plant 3,000 trees to mark each Arsenal win? They'll have to improve to save the planet, won't they? <laughs> but if you ever needed reminding football is more than a game, it came in the sight of players managers and match officials taking a knee before Wednesday's games. Powerful stuff. Hope you've enjoyed today's show and thanks once again for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.